Exodus chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 21 this morning. Again, that's Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Give you a second to turn there. And if you would, read along with me again. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hands over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the water was divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you're with us this morning as we go through this text, Lord, as we look at some deep theological themes that are found throughout the book of Exodus, God. I pray, Lord, not that we have steps this morning on how to live a godlier life or practical things to do throughout our week, Lord. I pray that this morning, Lord, that we see your glory. I pray that we have an awe, Lord, of how powerful you are, of how sovereign you are, how good you are, Lord, how just you are. I pray that we leave, Lord, joy-filled after worshiping you, Lord, through your word. But I thank you for this time. And I pray that you just fill our hearts with truth, Lord, as we dive deeply into this passage. In your son's name, amen. Of course, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus this morning. Today, we hit really the climax of the first half of the book of Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, which I'm sure is familiar to probably every single person in this room. This passage, really, if you understand the book of Exodus 
Acts as a transitional passage, it does two things. The first thing it does, as I said, it's the climax of the first half of the book of Exodus. But it also is an introduction to the second half of the book of Exodus. There are some major themes that this passage really introduces that will get further developed as we go on through the book of Exodus. And today I want to look at three of these themes. There's more than three. In fact, studying this passage this week, I was kind of overwhelmed with all the different theological, deep theological themes that we see in the parting of the Red Sea. But I picked out three that I think are important to the book of Exodus. And, and, and three themes, like I said, that, that will get developed further. The, the first theme is this, Moses as mediator. The second theme is Israel as a new creation. And finally, the third theme is Yahweh as a God to be feared. Again, I, I just want to make clear, this is going to be an introduction this morning to these three themes as we go through the passage. All three of these themes, as we go through the book of Exodus, will get developed in, in a deeper and more fuller way. But morning, this morning, again, I just want to introduce them. So let's start with Moses as mediator. If you would, look at verse 15 of chapter 14. If you would back up a little bit. Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. It says this in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, verse 15 to me as I came to this passage is is very interesting because as we learned a few weeks ago, Moses faced this trial of the Egyptians coming on one side and the sea being on the other side, meaning death on one side and death on the other side. Moses faced this trial with great courage. Let me just read two verses earlier. Look at verse 13. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's an amazing courage and faith in God. In fact, I I really believe this is just great leadership. But then we get to verse 15, and it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Now this is, be clear here, a a mild rebuke, and it's directed to Moses. The personal pronoun here, you, in Hebrew is singular. It's not plural. Again, English is weird. You can be singular or plural, but in Hebrew, it's clear that singular. When he says, why do you, when God tells Moses this, why do you cry to me? It's not you as in all the people, you and all the people. It's you, Moses. It's clearly referring to Moses in, in the context, right? But what's interesting is Moses wasn't the one that cried out to God. It was the Israelites that cried out to God. Again, go back to verse 10 now. Look what it says in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel, not Moses, cried out to the Lord. And listen to what they said. This is their cry. Verse 11, they said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness. 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel here is complaining. Their cry out to the Lord is a complaint. They are complaining, not Moses. But look at God's response, verse 15 now. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now, in studying this passage, of course, I've read all types of commentaries, and there's all types of guesses why God responds to Moses' way and not necessarily the Israelites, why God seems to be rebuking Moses. In fact, many liberal theologians say this is just clear evidence that there's two different authors in Exodus. There's an author that wrote Exodus 14, 1 through 14. That's one author. And then there's a different author that comes on and picks up verse 15 on. Right, two completely different authors. I, that can't be the case because the Bible is very clear that there is one author, the Pentateuch, that's Moses inspired by God. I think there's a better explanation, and this comes to a hermeneutical principle, and that word hermeneutics is a fancy word for just the, the science and art of interpreting Scripture, the rules we use to, to help interpret Scripture. And one of the oldest rules that's been used by the church for centuries is using Scripture to interpret Scripture. I think if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, this passage actually makes a lot of sense. If we understand Moses' role as mediator, this makes sense. Moses is the mediator. He's a go-between between God and Israel. I mean, just think about it. How did God communicate with Israel? Through Moses. In fact, he's the one that wrote the whole Pentateuch. But this is an important question, too, and I think we over overlook this sometimes. How did the people communicate with God? Through Moses. In fact, this theme, as I said, will get developed further as we go on through the book of Exodus. Moses as mediator really gets developed later on, especially at Mount Sinai, where where Moses ascends and descends from Mount Sinai. And we're going to see that God's presence is at the top of Mount Sinai and the people Israel at the bottom. And Moses ascends and descends back and forth as the mediator between God and Israel. In fact, keep a bookmarker in Exodus chapter 14. We're going to be jumping around scriptures this morning, but we're going to keep coming back to Exodus 14. Put a bookmarker there and turn with me to Exodus 19, verse 7. This is at Mount Sinai. says this in Exodus 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people. In other words, the Israelites, the, the elders. He's communicating with Israel. Moses called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had communicated to him. In other words, God communicated to Moses. Moses communicates to Israel. Then look at verse 8. All the people answered together and said, this is Israel talking now. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Moses is acting as mediator here. He's a go-between. He's a go-between between the people and God. And look at verse 9. This is a very important verse. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. In other words, God's going to speak to Moses and he does it in a way that the people will hear it. Why? And may also believe you forever. God wanted the people, he wanted the Israelites to know that he speaks through Moses. In fact, just think about how God spoke with Moses. He spoke with him face to face. This is what Exodus 33, 11 says. It says this, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now there's a lot of mystery in this passage and I'm excited to get there. It's Exodus 33. We'll get there and we'll talk about this. There's mystery in how God spoke to, to Moses face to face because in the very next passage, God makes it very clear that you can't see my face or you'll die, Moses. But at the least, there's an intimate relationship between God and Moses, a closeness with Moses more so than any other man, man at that time. In fact, I think more so than any other man in the Old Testament. In fact, listen to Numbers 12, verse 6. It says this, And he, this is God, he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. We see this in the Old Testament. This is how God communicated with the prophets through visions and dreams. That's how he communicated with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But listen to verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. It's Israel. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses had a a special relationship with God, a very important role as mediator between God and man between God and Israel. So turn back with me now to Exodus chapter 14. And let me just ask this question. We already answered it, but let's look at it again. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. And the question is this, who? Who cried out to the Lord? Israel did, right? Again, verse 10 says this, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Israel cried out to the Lord. Here's my next question. How did they cry out to the Lord? Look at verse 11. They said to Moses. They're interacting with God through Moses. Again, how did God respond to Israel? Look at verse 15 now. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Do you see it now? The people talked to Moses to communicate to God. Moses represented the people when he went to God. God talked to Moses as the people's representative. Now this leads to a very important observation. Again, to understand the Pentateuch, you really need to understand this. For Israel, there is only one way to God. Through Moses. God's faithful servant, which points us directly to Jesus. 
Turn to Hebrews. Again, we'll be back in Exodus 14. But turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, that's God, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. That's an allusion to Numbers 12, what we just read, that God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth, mouth as one faithful to, to God's house. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Let me be clear, that's a a reference that Jesus is God or equal to God. Look in verse 5, though. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And Moses was faithful as God's servant. And we see in the different passages in the Pentateuch that he had a privileged position. He spoke to God face to face as a friend. He was the mediator between God and man. Look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Listen, for how close Moses was with God, Jesus is the son of God. Equal to God in value and worth. Not only that, think about this. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because he is 100% God God's very own son, and 100% man. No one can better mediate between God and man than Jesus, who is both God and man. Why is this important? Why am I spending so much time on this theme in this couple of verses that we're going to see again throughout the book of Exodus? There's one main purpose this morning why I spent so much time on this. There's only one way to God. Through Jesus. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says this, There is one God, meaning all other gods are false gods. There's one true religion. There's one true God. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Again, there's only one way to God, Jesus, our mediator. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Exodus, Moses was a mediator. He was a go-between between God and man, right? He represented God to man, and he also represented man to God. In Exodus, there was only one way to God through Moses. But more importantly than that, Moses was a type of Christ, meaning Moses' life, his role, Everything he did pointed forward to Christ. Meaning Jesus is the truer and better Moses. We, we learned that in Hebrews chapter 3. Jesus is the truer and better mediator between God and man. 
Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which leads to an important question, and we can stop here and, and just ask this. Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in him? It's clear in scripture that he's the only way to salvation. He's the only way to a relationship with the Father, to a relationship with God. Have you trusted in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection? Have you cried out to him for mercy and grace? If you haven't done that, this is your chance right now. You can do that in your heart. God's listening because of the pathway Jesus has made for us. In fact, I just encourage you to ignore the rest of the sermon and spend some time with God in your heart right now. Trust in him. Trust in Jesus, our only mediator, our only way to God. We would turn back to Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. Again, we're going to see this theme get developed more and more as we go through the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 15. There's 40 chapters, so we have a ways to go. We're actually chapter 14. Um, but the first theme, this is the introduction, is Moses as the mediator of God. In fact, before we move on to the second theme, I just want to say there's actually a major heresy that comes out of the book of Exodus because people don't understand this theme. That Moses is a type of Christ. This heresy is called open theism, that God doesn't know the future. If you understand that Moses is, is a type of Christ, is a mediator, that he intercedes for the people of Israel, you understand that not only does God know the future, but that he's sovereign in every little aspect of our lives. But it's important that we understand this theme, Moses as the mediator of God. The second theme that I want to look at this morning is Israel as a new creation. Israel as a new creation. Look at verse 15. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Israel, Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now let me just kind of paint the picture of what's going on here. First of all, it was night. I think it's important to understand. We see this in verse 20. It says, and it lit up the night. We see it in a couple of other places in this passage, but the whole event of the crossing of the Red Sea happened at night. In fact, morning happens as soon as Israel gets on the other side of the Red Sea. This means that there was darkness over the land, especially for the Egyptians. Again, the pillar of cloud that was before the Israelites comes behind them comes between the Egyptians and Israel, causing great darkness on the Egyptian and causing light on the Israelites. It really is foreshadowing 
what's about to happen. Judgment on Egypt, darkness, and redemption for Israel, light. Look at verse 21. It says this, Then Moses stretched out his hands, hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the water being a wall for them on their right and on their left. Now there's a connection that the author is making here that is, is really obvious in Hebrew, but a lot less obvious in English. Let me just kind of point out a few words and, and some phrases and see if you can pick up on it. In, in verse 21, it says, A strong east wind. Now in Hebrew, and this is true for Greek too, wind is the same exact word for spirit. They're interchangeable. In fact, you don't know if it's talking about a spirit or wind besides the context. It's, it's correctly translated here because the context is an east wind, but wind and spirit are the same word. Verse 21, it says dry land. Verse 21, again, it says the waters were divided. Verse 22, it says the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And remember, this was all happening at night, meaning darkness was over the, the sea and the land. In fact, verse 20 says, and there was a cloud and the darkness. And remember, God separated the light from the darkness. There was light over Israel and darkness over Egypt. Does this sound familiar? Genesis 1-1, right? Genesis chapter 1. If you would, turn to Genesis 1-1. Again, we'll be back in Exodus 14. But I want you to see this. It says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's water. There's darkness over the water. And the Spirit, again, that's the same word as wind. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In fact, the same word is used in in the flood narrative, wind and spirit. Listen to Genesis 8 verse 1. It says this, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on, in the ark, and God made a wind or, or again, spirit. The same word. In the context is wind. That's good, but, but a wind blew over the earth and the waters subsided. In other words, this earth that was covered with water, the wind hovered over it or blew over it. Again, Genesis 1, 2 says this, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Again, just like Exodus 14, light over Israel, darkness over Egypt. Now look at verse 6. It says this, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. God is dividing the waters here. Now look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. In Exodus 14, it says that God made the sea dry land. Again, 
There's a connection between Exodus 14 and creation. It's not the first time we see this in Exodus. We actually see it in the birth of Moses, too. But there's a connection that the author is making to to creation. When, When Israel came out of the Red Sea after the night, right, the next morning, as morning started, after the waters of judgment had fell on the Egyptians, Israel was not only free, right, free from slavery, but they were also a new creation. This is so important. For the first time since the garden, for the first time since creation, for, for the first time since the fall, once again, God is going to dwell with man on earth. Israel really is being portrayed as a new Adam. The promised land that they are promised and they're heading to, a new Eden. God is reversing the effects of the fall. He's sending them to Eden. In fact, as a new Adam, they fail, just like Adam did. And they're kicked out of the garden, the promised land, in a second exodus, exile. They leave through the east, just like Adam and Eve leaves through the east in Eden. This idea of Israel being a new creation really sets up the rest of the book of Exodus. God will dwell with Israel. God will dwell with man. It becomes a major theme, right? And it's not just the the theme of Exodus. I mean, if you want to understand that it is the theme of Exodus, just look at the last paragraph of the last chapter of Exodus. God comes down into the temple or the tabernacle and dwells with man. But it's not just the theme in Exodus. It's also the major theme of the Pentateuch. It really becomes a major theme of the whole Old Testament. God dwelling with man, it becomes the theme of the whole old, whole Bible. This is where everything's going. A new creation where God is going to dwell with man. Again, hold your spot in Exodus 14 and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verse 1 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What is that? A new creation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That last phrase is confusing to most of us. The sea was no more. What's this have to do with it? Well, in scriptures, the sea represents chaos, death, evil, judgment. That's why God flooded the earth with the sea. The flood was judgment. That's why God's final judgment on Egypt was drowning them in the sea. The sea represented judgment, but there will be no judgment in the new creation. There will be no evil in the new creation. And the sea was no more. Verse two, and I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's just like the garden. 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. You know, I think most of us have a, a kind of conception of what heaven or what eternity is going to be like. And for the most part, I think most of us have a wrong idea. We kind of think we're going to be like on a cloud with a harp, you know, bored for eternity. But when you die, your soul, it's clear in Scripture, goes with God. But at the end, God's going to come down and recreate the earth. And we're going to have resurrection bodies. We will be living in physical bodies on a physical earth for eternity. It'll be like the garden. There's something about that that just makes me excited. But the greatest thing about it is that we will dwell with God once again. He's reversing the curse, and we see that clearly starting after the Red Sea. At the Red Sea, God glorifies himself in in two main ways. A final judgment on the Egyptians by, by drowning them in the sea and salvation, redemption for the Israelites. And it's clear through this redemption that God is reversing the curse. He's recreating mankind. So that's the second theme that we see in the uh, Red Sea narrative, the parting of the Red Sea. Israel is a new creation. This brings me to our last theme. If you would turn back to Exodus chapter 14, we'll be in verse 22. The last theme is this, Yahweh, a God to be feared. Of course, this is an important theme that we see and that gets developed further in the book of Exodus. And this is an important theme that we see throughout all of scripture. Today, I just want to kind of introduce this theme. This is a deep theological subject. So we're going to just kind of scratch the surface of it this morning. Look at verse 22, Exodus 14, verse 22. It says this, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Verse 23, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogged their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Again, as I said, as we approach this passage, this is, this is the climax of the first half of the book of Exodus. And it's really a fitting end between this conflict that we have seen from the beginning between Egypt and Israel and between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Remember Exodus 5. We've gone over this enough times. Exodus 5 verse 1, it says this, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that, he, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, this is Pharaoh, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Again, that's capital L-O-R-D. That means that's the name of God. Pharaoh said, in other words, who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. Well, look at the end. Verse 25, it says this. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel. For Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. God has revealed his name. Back between chapters 5 and chapters 14. Right? It's the process of God revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. And the Egyptians finally understand and they're terrified. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Now remember, the sea represents judgment and death. And Yahweh threw Egypt into it. Verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now listen to verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Now, this is appropriate for a couple of reasons. One reason, and remember chapter 1 of Exodus, what, what did the, the Egyptians do to the Israelites? They threw the firstborn children into the Nile, meaning there are dead bodies in the Nile, their sin. Well, look what happens. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's the first reason why this was an appropriate uh, judgment on Egypt. But, but the sea, again, was God's final judgment on Egypt. Let me just read what one theologian wrote about the sea. He said this. The sea is, a, is in biblical and Israelite thinking, is a apocalyptic figure representing destruction and death. It is the abyss, a, a watery hell from which evil things emerge and into which the wicked finally descend. It is dominion of the Leviathan. And we see this in Job, Psalms, and Isaiah. In Revelation 13, the beasts rise out of the sea. The sea is also filled with dead in Revelation 20, verse 13. Jonah goes down into the heart of the sea and becomes a portrait of Christ's descent into death, Matthew 12, 40. For Egypt, the events at the Red Sea was the end of an apocalyptic series of judgment that ended with the nation symbolically swallowed by death, swallowed by the sea. Which leads, again, to this important theme, a great theme in the book of Exodus, that we will see coming up over and over again. And really, it's a great theme that we see in all of Scripture. The fear of the Lord. Look at verse 31 again. It says this, And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people 
feared the Lord. Seems like a reasonable response, right? (laughs) After all the plagues, after seeing the Red Sea parting and, and the destruction of Egypt. But look at the end of this verse. This is super interesting. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. In fact, not only did they believe, but in in chapter 15, the very next chapter, they sing a joy-filled song to the Lord. Think about that. Again, look at Exodus 15, verse 1, the very next verse. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. In other words, the fear of the Lord, in verse 31, caused Israel to have faith in God. They believed in the Lord, and it caused Israel to sing a joy-filled song to God. In other words, the fear of the Lord drove Israel toward God, and this is going to sound weird, in belief and joy. Yet at the same time, the fear of the Lord for the Egyptians caused them to panic and caused them to run away from God. And ultimately, it led to destruction. Just think about that for a second. The fear of the Lord for Israel drove Israel toward God and salvation. The fear of the Lord for Egypt drove Egypt away from God in panic and dread and led to destruction. What's going on in this passage? How can the fear of the Lord do two dramatically different things? Well, the concept of the fear of the Lord is very deep, and it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around it, but but the answer to this question, how the fear of the Lord can, can cause two dramatically different things happen, is actually pretty simple. In Scripture, there's two different types of fear. There's two different types of fear of God. There's a godly fear, and there's a sinful fear. Again, turn with me to Exodus 20, verse 18. This gets developed as we go through the book of Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 18. It says this in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, this represents God's presence in front of Israel on the mountain, Mount Sinai. They, They trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is the same type of fear that Egypt had at the Red Sea. This type of fear produced terror and dread of God. It it, it caused a temptation for Israel to run away from God because they were afraid of him. But listen to what Moses says in verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. Now listen to this so that the fear of, the, of God will be with you. <laughs> Did you hear that? To keep you from sinning. 
Moses says, do not be afraid, but make sure you fear God. (laughs) It's just clear here that there's two different types of fear. There's There's a fear, first of all, there's a fear of God's judgment, punishment, and rejection. This type of fear is talked about in 1 John 4, 18, when it says this, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's a, a type of fear that, that fears God's judgment. But there's a second type of fear. There's a godly fear, a, a healthy fear. Listen, this is going to sound so weird. A joy-filled fear. It's the type of fear that we see in, in verse 20 where it says, God has come to test you that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This fear keeps us away from sin, but it also drives us to God. In fact, I think the number one way it keeps us from sinning is because it drives us to God and away from sin. This fear is a fear that's connected to love and worship. Again, that sounds weird. How can fear and love go hand in hand? Well, let me just ask this question. What's the greatest commandment in Scripture? You can say it. Love God, right? Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is to love, to to love God. But where did Jesus get this from? Deuteronomy 6. Just recently went over this. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema statement. And the verse 5 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now listen to the context of this passage. This is Deuteronomy, just two verses earlier, one through two. It says this, Deuteronomy 6, one and two says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6 is telling Israel to do both. Love God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and fear God, Deuteronomy 6, 2. You know why? Because they're connected. They're connected. This passage, and I believe all of Scripture, implies that the love of God and the fear of God are intimately connected. In fact, we will fear God in eternity forever. Let me just kind of read a couple of verses that I believe pulls this out. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says this. Blessed, that's a good thing, right? Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Now that word blessed has a connotation, the Hebrew word that's translated blessed has a connotation of happiness. In fact, there's a lot of theologians that think we should just translate this happiness or joy-filled. It should be translated happy or joy-filled is the one who, who fears the Lord always. 
That just sounds weird to us, right? Psalms 2 verse 11 says this, serve, which is this idea of worship. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We have worship, fear, joy, and trembling. And they all go hand in hand. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 34.11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The, the implication there is that this is a good thing. You need this. I believe this is the type of fear that the Israelites had at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. This type of fear drove Israel toward God. It caused, caused them to sing praises and worship. This type of fear is so strange. This type of fear cause joy. You might be asking, how can fear bring joy and praise? Because I know this goes against our instinct, and I think the biggest reason this goes against our instinct is because of we're such a therapeutic culture. Pop psychology has just taught us that fear is nothing but a negative thing. I mean, how many times do we hear phobia mixed to anything? Right? You, you want to no, you get start with that. I'll keep going. <laughs> Most people in our culture, because of pop psychology, would never, ever put fear with joy and praise. Because fear is nothing but a negative thing in our culture. But listen, I, I just don't think that's true. And it's not true because the Bible makes that clear. But, but I just think fear, joy, praise, worship, and love, all these things go hand in hand often. Don't get me wrong, there's an unhealthy type of fear, but there is a healthy type of fear. I, we're going to dive into this much more deeper. Again, this is just an introduction to this theme. But let me just give you one example. One example, again, introduction, just to get you thinking. How many of you guys have been to Yosemite? I, I love Yosemite. I use it in my sermons all the time, right? I love. I just love standing at the bottom of the valley and just looking up at those massive granite walls. Joy, awe, praise. I go to Yosemite and I just get lost in its glory, knowing it's a reflection of God's glory. You know, when I was in college, I had a chance to hike Half Dome. If you've done that, how many of you done that? If, if you haven't, like you get really high, and then there's a point where you're like, you go up like a ladder. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like you kind of hold on to a chain and you kind of go up this, like people freeze about halfway up and it's like ants kind of going around them because people, there's so many people going up. And you get to the top of, of Half Dome and there's no guardrails, there's just nothing. You're on top of this massive rock. When I was in high, at college and I had a chance to do this, you Guess what emotions I was feeling on top of that, that rock? One of them was fear. 
I was literally trembling, <laughs> shaking. 3,000 foot cliff. And when you get up there, you really don't realize it's like right there. Once I finally figured that out, I crawled on my belly <laughs> and just peeked the eye over the edge. I was terrified. You know what else I was feeling? Awe, wonder, joy, praise, even a peace. Everything else in my life was just secondary at that point, forgotten. In fact, I tell you what, if I could hack high calf dome right now, if like a helicopter just landed, I'd leave. I told first service I wouldn't even come to second service. <laughs> just take me there and put me up there. I'd, I'd love to go back. I mean, this is why people all over the world, you know, Yosemite, you hear all types of languages. Go to the Grand Canyon. People are drawn to these places. And the glory of these places bring a fearful awe that's mixed with joy, praise, and wonderment. You know what Romans 1 tells us? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, in other words, creation, we're drawn to God. And we ignore him by looking at creation instead of worshiping him through looking at creation. Half Dome, the Grand Canyon, the Pacific Ocean. I love living in California, I know. That's controversial here. The heavens, the stars. How about this? Massive thunderstorms. All reflections of the glory of God. We're drawn to it. Even though when we're in these things or on these things or around these things, it makes us feel small, insignificant, frail, unworthy. On top of half tone, listen, my worries were just gone in that moment. In that moment, I was not focused on me. You hear that? In fact, I forgot me. <laughs> That's the problem with popular psychology, just so you know. It focuses on you. When you do that, all types of worries come. All types of fears come. When you're focused on, on the Lord, everything else fades away. When you forget you, you finally find peace and joy. The Egyptians were afraid of God because they were facing this judgment. I want to be clear on this. It's very appropriate for the, the Egyptians. In fact, if you're not saved this morning, it's appropriate for you. If you haven't submitted to Christ, if you haven't put your faith in him, you should be terrified. You should dread his, his judgment. You are facing it. Trust in his son is the only way to God. It's the only way to salvation. But if you are a Christian this morning, you should have a different type of fear of God. One that keeps you from sinning 
for sure. But also a fear that drives you toward God. A fear that produces awe and wonderment and faith and even joy. A fear that, that casts out all other fears because they seem small next to this mighty God. A fear that causes you to feel small yourself in the best way. A fear that causes praise and worship just like the Israelites did in chapter 15. True godly fear will never make you or tempt you to run away from him. True godly fear will always draw you closer to him in love and awe. We'll see how this develops further in the book of Exodus. These are the three themes. Again, this is an introduction, as we'll see in the second half of Exodus. And we see all three of them in the crossing, you know, the Red Sea crossing. Moses as mediator, a type of Christ. Israel as a new creation, really almost a new Adam. And Yahweh is a God to be feared. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we just reflect on the awesome wonders of the book of Exodus, Lord, God, as we just look out at the heavens that declare, that scream, you are glorious, you spoke all of this into existence. God, I pray that it makes us feel small. As a church, we understand just how insignificant we we are outside of you. That our only worth is because you loved us and sent your son to die on the cross for us. I pray that we get lost in your glory and your grace and that we tremble Lord, enjoy because of how awesome you are. As we approach Christmas, Lord, I keep pray that we keep in mind that this awesome God that you came down as a baby so that you could redeem us. I pray that truth will just humble us this season, Lord. I thank you. I thank you for the book of Exodus. I thank you for what you did for Israel. God, be with us as a church. In your son's name, amen.